Thank you, Jordan. If you would, please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12. It doesn't take an expert in cultural analysis to say that we're living in a polarized culture right now. There's pressure, all kinds of areas to pick sides on various issues. You're very aware through watching the news or maybe even through conversations with people that you know well that there are always people that you can find who are on the extreme side of any issue, on the polar opposite side of somebody else. But there are always many more, in my experience, who seem to consider themselves in the virtuous middle on any issue. Um, They tend to think that living their life in the middle of the road on hot topic issues is the high road to take. Let me give a couple of examples. When it comes to political issues, they'll say, I'm not on the left or the right, right? I am a moderate. That's a basic thing that we hear. We'll hear it even in theology, though. We're not just talking about political issues or social issues. You ask somebody, are you a Calvinist or an Arminian? They'll say, neither. I'm a Calminian. Or even in sports, sometimes you have this middle-of-the-road mentality. Who, who are you rooting for in the Super Bowl? Oh, it, it doesn't matter to me who wins. I just, I just want to see a good game. There's nothing wrong with that. That's how I feel about the Super Bowl a lot of times as well. There's nothing inherently wrong um, with the middle ground perspective. Actually, a lot of times, it is the wise course of action. It can show humility. It can show a nuanced perspective that maybe not everything is so black and white. It can show a desire to be ironic and not divisive. But the moderate position is not always the best position. In our passage today, Jesus speaks of a war that is going on. A war between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And he says that there is no middle ground in this war. He has issued a full-on assault against Satan's kingdom. And if you are not for him, you are against him. There's not some spectrum of decisions to make or positions to hold. You're either all in or you are out. As Pastor Mike said in his sermon on a parallel passage in Luke, there are no Switzerland's in this war. There is no neutrality when it comes to the battle between the kingdom of God and Satan's kingdom. You must pick a side. And the stakes are very high in this battle. We hear people talking all the time these days about being on the right side of history or being on the wrong side of history. Let me just say, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history when it comes 
to whose side you're on in the kingdom of God. Those who are not with Jesus will not be forgiven of their sins. They will face eternal condemnation. But those who are with Jesus, those who are on His side, they will be forgiven of their sins. They will be saved from the dominion of Satan as well. So what does it look like to be for Jesus and not against Him? That's a fundamental question that we must ask and answer and one that our text addresses this morning. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Somewhat lengthy passage. I'm not going to comment on all of it, but I do want to read all of it. Beginning in verse 22 through the end of the chapter. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, to Jesus. And Jesus healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth, to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. 
When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The stage is set in verse 22. There's a man brought to Jesus who's oppressed by a demon. And this demon possession has left him unable to see and unable to speak. So Jesus heals him, presumably by casting the demon out of this man. This miracle it leads to two responses, which is typical in the book of Matthew. We see Jesus do something miraculous, and then we see the way that people respond, which kind of puts us on notice as we read the Gospels. How do we respond to Jesus? The first response is from the crowd. They are amazed at what they see and say, can this be the son of David? In other words, based off of what we're seeing, maybe not just in this instance, but what they've been hearing in other instances, could this be God's Messiah who has come to save His people? That's the first response. The second response is that of the Pharisees. They see the same thing that the crowd sees, but they don't see it in the same way. It's important to notice that they don't deny that Jesus is acting with supernatural power. They're not thinking this is some sleight of hand or some type of trick that he is performing. They get it that casting out a demon is something that can only be done with supernatural power. Their issue is they will not attribute that to divine supernatural power. Instead, they say the source of Jesus' power and authority is satanic. He's casting out demons by Beelzebul, which is another way that they referred to Satan in those days. The prince of demons. So, the conflict has been established between Jesus and the Pharisees. And it leads to a very lengthy response from him. His response, I see him doing two main things. He's defending himself against the charge that they are making. So he's going on the defense. But he also then turns and goes on the offense. He's defending himself against this charge that he's casting out demons by the prince of demons. And as he does this, we begin to see a little bit more clearly into who Jesus is and what it is that He has come to do. But then when He turns to the offense, when He 
puts the Pharisees in his crosshairs, as it were. Puts them in the dock. Begins questioning them. We see how to respond to Jesus. His offensive argument deals mainly with warning those who are against him. But by way of implication, we begin to see a picture also of what it means to be with him or for him. So let's begin with Jesus' defense in verses 25 to 30. His argument to the Pharisees teaches us who Jesus is, as I mentioned earlier, but also what it is that he's doing. It teaches us that Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God against the kingdom of Satan. His argument unfolds in three steps in these verses. Then there's this biting conclusion. You're either for me or you're against me, which is kind of the transition in the passage. But let's deal, first of all, with the argument. The first step in the argument, Jesus uses basic logic. He says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Abraham Lincoln picked this up as he was talking in a debate about slavery. He said, the union can't stand if we don't pick a side on this issue of slavery. Jesus is using it to refer to a much more important war. He is saying it doesn't make any sense that he would cast out demons by the prince of demons. Why would Satan attack his own soldiers, weaken his his efforts? If there's infighting within the kingdom of Satan... It's sure to lead to failure. That's the first step in the argument in verses 25 to 26. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided. How will his kingdom stand? The next step of his argument is in verse 27. He appeals to precedent. Jesus is, after all, not the only one who is casting out demons. Other Jews were involved in exorcism to some degree. Granted, it's to a lesser degree. I mean, Jesus is casting out demons left and right, and it's just by His Word. There's no ritualistic formula that He's following. He speaks, and people come out. But nevertheless, others were involved in exorcisms, and most likely, the Pharisees themselves were casting out demons. So He says, is your work also satanic? Your logic makes no sense. Then he moves on in verse 28 to the final part of his argument. If casting out demons by the prince of demons is what he's not doing, then what is he doing? He tells them what he's up to. And by doing that, also tells us something about who he is in verse 28. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That Spirit of God language is really important. It doesn't come out of nowhere. We just saw it last week. Remember at the end of our passage last week, this prophecy from Isaiah that predicted that the Messiah, who would be called the servant of the Lord, what would be true about him? 
God's Spirit would be upon him. And so now Jesus is saying, if it is by the Spirit of God that I do this, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. All of the work that he is doing is by the Spirit of God. Who's, who would be the one that the Spirit of God rested upon? The Messiah. Remember in Lucas's sermon a couple of weeks ago, John's disciples come to Jesus and say, are you the one? Are you the Messiah? Or should we look for somebody else? And he says, go tell them what you see and hear. People are healed. The blind see. The gospel is proclaimed. Demons are cast out. All of this is what Isaiah said would happen when the Messiah came and the Spirit rested upon him. So what Jesus is saying when he speaks to the Pharisees here, what if what I'm doing is because the Spirit of God is upon me? Then the kingdom of God has come upon you because the King from God has come. He's the Messiah. And what is Jesus up to when he's casting out demons by the Spirit of God? He tells us in the verses that follow, he is entering into Satan's house. He has scaled the walls to the castle in Satan's kingdom. And what has he done? He's tied up Satan so that he can plunder his goods. Who are the goods? What are the goods? They're, it's not stuff. It's people. He's bound Satan so that he can rescue the POWs that are in the enemy's camp. He's saving people who have been enslaved to Satan. Bringing them from Satan's side of the line into God's side. Those of you here, especially kids, but others as well, who have ever played Capture the Flag. We actually, as a staff, played Capture the Flag a few weeks ago in the basement. My hamstrings were sore for a number of days afterward. But if you know how the game works, you know that one of the things you're doing, you're not just going after flags, you're also going after your teammates who have been put in jail in enemy territory. But it's difficult to get them out of jail. Why? Because if somebody tags you, you have to go to jail. But Jesus couldn't be tagged. He crosses the line into enemy territory and he ties up all of the other people that could tag people and then he just starts one by one bringing those who have been put in jail on Satan's side back on to God's side in the kingdom of heaven. Friends, there is nothing that is much more important to us than the atonement of Jesus Christ. What He did for us on the cross to save us from our sins. However, Jesus did not only come to save His people from their sins. We lose this emphasis sometimes in the evangelical church. Jesus also came to crush Satan under His feet. He is showing that in His work of casting out demons during His earthly ministry. He is putting Satan and His kingdom on notice that the kingdom of God is advancing and it will prevail against the kingdom of Satan.
But that's true today as well. Not just in Jesus' earthly ministry. Even now, as the gospel goes forth to the nations, people are being freed from the clutches of Satan. Not only are people having demons cast out, that happens. Not only are people being healed of physical blindness and deafness, there is healing that is taking place. But even more importantly, as the gospel goes forth, people are hearing the gospel and being cured of spiritual blindness and being transferred out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that Satan is the God of this world and that he has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. But as the gospel goes forth and people hear, the lights come on in their hearts and they are freed from the clutches of Satan. Missions work is war. Do you believe that? Our missionaries are storming the gates of hell. So when you pray for them, pray for the things that they ask you to pray for. But pray also for them knowing that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Do you think what's going on with L and J right now is simply a matter of flesh and blood? No. The principalities and the powers are at work in trying to thwart the advance of the gospel. Pray that the sword of the Spirit would be effective in advancing the kingdom of God. The same Spirit that was upon Jesus is now with us as we go to take the Gospel to the nations. Verse 30 is the conclusion to Jesus' argument. He has established that He is working by the Spirit of God to advance the kingdom of God against the kingdom of Satan. And so now he says to the Pharisees, and really to the crowds that are likely listening in to this argument, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Using that harvest language that we talked about a few weeks ago. The basic question that is before us this morning The basic question that is before every man, every woman, every boy, every girl is whose side are you on? There's no middle ground. You're either with Jesus or you are against Him. There is no neutrality. And not only that, there are winners and losers in this battle. This is not some contest where everybody's a winner. The stakes are high. How we respond to Jesus matters for eternity. And this leads us to the second part of Jesus' response to the Pharisees. He moves to offense. They've been questioning Him. Now He begins, in a sense, questioning them. 
He teaches us what it looks like to be against him. But by way of implication, he is also teaching us what it means to be with him or for him. So I'm going to have two points under this offense section. First, what does it look like to be against Jesus? Being against Jesus often involves a heart level, willful rejection of him. It involves more than that sometimes, um, but often a heart level, willful rejection of him. Verses 31 to 32 are hotly debated. I hope that you'll have some more clarity when we're done talking about it, but scholars have been debating these verses for centuries. Um, They will continue to be difficult for us. But let us give a stab at trying to make sense of them. Let me read them again. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks a word against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. The first part of verse 31, the first part of verse 32 as well, it's remarkable. But it's so often obscured by the difficulty of the second part of each of those verses. Jesus starts by saying a remarkable thing. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. He goes on to say, even those who speak a word against the Son of Man, against Jesus, will be forgiven. Jesus came to save us from every conceivable sin. He came for the tax collectors, as we've seen. He came for people like prostitutes. He saved people like Paul, who persecuted the church to death. He came to save people like Peter, who denied him three times. Sometimes people are not yet convinced that Jesus is the Savior. And so, they will speak a word against him. But Jesus says even those people can be forgiven if they come to believe that Jesus is the Christ. Repent of their sins and trust in him. But Jesus says that the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Well, what does this mean? How can Jesus say every conceivable sin will be forgiven but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Well, the context is critical. Jesus, whatever he means by this, has to apply to what the Pharisees are doing. It can't be taken out of context. And what are the Pharisees doing with Jesus? They see his miracles. They've seen a whole host of different things that he has done. They have heard his teaching. Which explains the significance of what he has done. They are confronted with amazing and really irrefutable evidence that this is the Messiah. How could they read the scriptures that told them what the Messiah would do when he came empowered by the Spirit and then see what Jesus is doing and not know that he in fact was the Son of God, 
What I think Jesus is saying here is that they know it. Intellectually, they know it in their minds, but they are unwilling to believe it in their hearts. They were making a willful decision, not an intellectual decision. They know it, and yet they still refuse to believe. They know it's the Spirit of God who is at work in Jesus, but when they then say, no, it's actually Satan that's at work in you, that's blaspheming what God is doing through Jesus by the Spirit. They're saying, we see the Spirit is at work, and yet we are so dug in that we refuse to bend the knee. What more could He do to convince them? They had set their hearts against Him. And in setting their hearts against Him, they were setting themselves against the Spirit of God, which at the base level, what this means is that they were setting themselves against God. God had sent Jesus to save them, and they're saying, we don't want what you're selling. We want to stay in charge. If a person is so dug in that even when they know that Jesus is the Son of God, they know He's the only Savior, and yet they make a willful decision to reject Him, what more can be done? There is no forgiveness available for that person. Let me hasten to say that if you are anxious and wondering whether or not you have committed the so-called unforgivable sin, if you're worried about that, you probably haven't. People that are committing this high-handed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, they don't care. And so if you're worrying about whether or not you, you... Every conceivable sin. Jesus died for every conceivable sin. But if you're unwilling to receive the grace and mercy of God, there's no forgiveness available. Verses 33 to 37, Jesus goes on to explain that all of this is a matter of the heart. Not simply a matter of having enough intellectual evidence. If the heart is bad, a person will not confess with his mouth and believe in his heart that Jesus is Lord. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What you say about Jesus with your mouth reveals what's going on in your heart. And it is the first thing that determines whether you are against Jesus or with Him. And remember, there is no middle ground. The stakes are high in this war. It's a matter of life and death, heaven and hell for eternity. Look at verses 36 to 37. On the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. What words are Jesus speaking of here? I think they're the words that were spoken of at the beginning of the passage. If you say Jesus is the Messiah, 
the Savior with your mouth and believe it in your heart, you will be forgiven. You will be justified. You will be saved. But if you say, we know Jesus claims to be the Savior, the Messiah. We, we know the truth about what He has done and yet we refuse to believe. Then you will be condemned. It is all a matter of the heart. I saw this when I was in seminary and I would be back on the weekends and sometimes for longer periods of time. In 2011, I participated in a number of public debates with the Atheist and Agnostics Club at WSU. I'm not a master apologist, but I do think myself and the others that were with me, we put forward clear arguments as best we could to defend the gospel of Jesus Christ. But over time, as I debated in public and spent time personally, one-on-one with some of the members of this club, I came to the conclusion that the issues were not really intellectual. They were heart issues. It wasn't that these men's, young men's mind was getting in the way of them coming to faith. These men didn't want to believe. There was nothing that I could do to convince them otherwise. I was reminded of this as I read this. Who's a better apologist than anybody? I mean, isn't Jesus the best apologist? Did he convince the Pharisees? Then can we really win people solely by strong intellectual arguments? No, the heart must be changed. We do need to be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within us. Do the work. Know what you believe and why you believe it. And yet the best work that you can do, the most profitable work that you can do, is get on your knees and pray that God would take the plow of the Holy Spirit to the hard hearts That He would turn them into good soil. That He would fertilize them so that the seed of the gospel would take root. We'll talk more about that next week. We preach. We pray. We plead and try to persuade people all of these things. And yet at the end of the day, if people are unwilling to believe, I do think there comes a time when we have to shake the dust off of our feet and move on to the next town. The passage, the paragraph that follows, there will be Ninevites who are ready to hear. Maybe the Queen of Sheba herself will be ready to hear. We continue to do gospel work, but we can't make people believe. This point is driven home in the next section in verses 38 to 42, but I don't have time to deal with that this morning. I want to move on to my final point. We spent most of our time considering what it looks like to be against Jesus, but what does it look like to be with Him or for Him? We've seen a wrong response. What's the right response look like? If a good heart towards Jesus bears fruit, what does a good what does good fruit look like. There are a number of things that could be said, but I want to say just one thing here. Being with Jesus must involve doing the will of the Father. If those who are against Him 
are willfully rejecting Jesus, those who are with Him are submitting themselves to the will of God. In verses 43 to 45, Jesus resumes this topic of casting out demons. His basic point, just to put it simply and to move quickly, is that the work of God is not complete if a person is freed from a demon. The empty space where that demon once was must be filled with something else. The evil needs to be replaced with the good. And what is that good? The answer to that question comes somewhat obliquely in the next section where Jesus is interrupted in verses 46 to 40 to 50 while he's teaching by his mothers and his mother and his brothers who are at the door of the house they want to have an audience with him and Jesus uses this interruption as an opportunity to teach what it means to have this empty house that has been emptied of demons filled up with the right thing he says that it is not enough to be delivered from Satan's kingdom. We also have to be subject to God's kingdom. Or in the language of the text, we not only have to get out of Satan's house or be brought out of Satan's house, we have to come in to God's house. And who are the people who belong to the house of God? Who are Jesus' mother and brothers and sisters? It is those who do the will of the Father. And what is the will of the Father? Jesus has taught us what this means throughout Matthew. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, He teaches us as the King from heaven what it looks like to become citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Those who are in the family of God submit to the kingdom of heaven by submitting to the King of heaven. That is, they obey everything that Jesus commands. They become a disciple of Jesus Christ. Those who truly confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord will prove that they believe He is Lord through submitting to Him. Those whose hearts have been changed by God will bear fruit in keeping with their repentance. They will observe all that Jesus has commanded. And part of that obedience to Jesus is to go to all of the nations and make disciples of Jesus Christ. As John Anderson last, said last week, disciples make disciples. How do we do that? We begin by going, whether in Wichita or around the world, and proclaiming the good news of the gospel. We declare that through Jesus, we can be delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His Son. That in Him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. We go and declare that Jesus has defeated Satan, the one who held us captive in fear. He has delivered us from Him. We are called to storm the gates of the enemy with the good news from the King. To call people as ambassadors of Jesus Christ to believe in Him. And as we do so, Christ will accomplish His mission.
we will see God continue to set captives free who are in bondage to Satan. The nations will come out of the kingdom of Satan and into the kingdom of the Son. They will confess with their mouth that He is Lord. And they will bend the knee and submit to Him. Let us give ourselves to this work. Let's pray. Father, I pray that Your Word would find good soil in our hearts. That it would bear fruit. I pray for anyone here who does not yet know Jesus that You would draw them by Your Spirit Grant them faith. Grant them repentance. And that you would enable us to obey Christ, to submit to Him. For the sake of your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.